The Beautiful Uterus is an uplifting podcast covering all aspects of women's menstrual health. Here you'll learn from experts in the field of menstrual care. The information provided here is not meant to be used for self-diagnosis or to replace treatment by a licensed holistic or medical professional. To view our full disclaimer, please visit fibroidfoundation.org. Hello, I'm Satiria Venable, founder and CEO of the Fibroid Foundation. In this episode, we'll talk about fibroid care during the pandemic with Dr. Linda Bradley of the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Bradley, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. Well, thank you for asking me. This is the highlight of my day, and I'm glad we can make this happen. Oh, thank you. We appreciate that. I um, have been following you for quite some time. You're a member of our advisory board, and I saw that in a recent article that you wrote for AAGL, the American Association of Gynecologic Laparoscopists, where you're medical director, you quoted Google's CEO who said, and I'm paraphrasing, that we should approach this time with calm and responsibility. I think that's great advice. Would you expand on that thought? Yeah, I think right now with the pandemic, it's led us to have a sensation sometimes of fear and flight. And this pandemic and this uh, virus will be with us for a long time. So I think it's time for us as an individual and collectively as women and as a society to begin to make to pivot. Um, and what do I mean? Um, pivoting around understanding what's important in your life, what things you should do and should not do, a time to have self-reflection of including all the good things in your life with good friends, reconnecting with family, um, getting your house, so to speak, uh, emotional house, your spiritual house, your physical house um, in order so that you can um, move forward being a responsible citizen taking care of yourself. Um, there's no we uh, in this right now. It's about me or about you taking care of yourself because, you know, as women, we take care of so many things. So I think this um, mm -hmm. time where many of us may be fortunate to work from home and even if we can't, that we start doing things um, to have self-reflection, um, self-care, eating healthier, cooking more often. And these things, I think we now have the calmness in our life because we're not on the go, 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 where we can settle down and begin to just self-reflect. So I look at this as a time, as much as I don't like it, um, that people are dying and are ill and our hospitals and ERs are very, very busy. It is a time for all of us to sit back and collect our thoughts, be kind, and pivot in a direction that will make us emotionally, physically, and spiritually more healthy. That's fantastic. I think that that's phenomenal advice. Um, Thank wow. you. It's Women's, <laughs> it's Women's Health Week, and uh, many women are home now due to the pandemic and unable to see their physicians in person. Uh, surgeries have been postponed, and there's concern about caring for themselves at this time. Are there self-care steps that women can take at home now? Yes, and I'd first like to say Hospitals are not closed. Hospitals are safe environments to be in. I don't think you're going to find hospitals cleaner than they are now. Everybody's adhering to hand washing. Uh, we're doing social distancing in hospitals. So while I'm going to give some tips about uh, things that women and families can do at home, please, please, please do not delay seeking care for things that aren't getting better on your own. I do think that there's okay. a big myth that you don't want to go to the hospital, but that's the furthest from the truth. And I'd like to just preface Good. this by saying we're finding fewer people showing up to the hospital with heart attacks and stroke um, and sometimes mm -hmm. some other critical illnesses. And sometimes, unfortunately, people have lost their life because they failed to go in with some sentinel signs of chest pain, discomfort, headaches, other kinds of things that may have led them to be, um, to be seen at an emergency room to get the care, to mm -hmm. take care of a problem. It's important for our listeners to know that almost 
all hospitals and many private practice offices have, again, pivoted um, quickly to what we call virtual visits. The Cleveland Clinic, um, three months ago, six months ago, only 5% of our interactions with patients were virtual, whether we use video or the old-fashioned telephone. Right now, with the coronavirus, we are up to 70 to 75% of our visits being done virtually. Uh, I do want to say that um, there are people who don't have a smartphone, but we have had a telephone for eons, and you can still talk with your physician about a problem. So I'd say no matter where you live, to see if that's an option for you, um, and that would allow... you to or your family to get an answer to a question to delve into a problem with your physician to then know can this be managed at home with things that you can do or no do you really need to come in right away to be seen so um Mm -hmm. while we don't want people to go to the er because they stubbed their toe you know put some ice on it put your foot up take a couple of tylenol that's different than something that's very very significant and impacting your quality of life and doesn't get better quickly on its own. So I would like to just say that. So um, That's the great pandemic feedback. did not, yeah, yeah, yeah the, the pandemic did <laughs> not close hospitals. Okay. Um, right. Just be okay. um, responsible and you can always call uh, to see if you should go in. That's uh, much needed about, advice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you did ask, sure, um, are there yeah. self-care, you know, steps that women can take at home? Um, yeah. Uh, in reference to fibroids, or in reference to anything in particular? In reference to fibroids specifically, or endometriosis, if you care to okay. expand oh. on that, since I know you sure. that you're, you have a specialty area in a, many areas of women's health. Okay, so I think the first self-care steps would be journaling. Uh, for certain symptoms, whether it's keeping track of a period, the length of the period, the amount. An important quality also for self-care is looking at the impact of pain or discomfort or heavy menstrual bleeding on what's going on. So I think one of the self-care steps is to be really intuitive and to say, okay, when did something start? I love my patients, but it's amazing that women cannot tell me when their period started how many days did they have breakthrough bleeding? When did it occur? So be a detective and write down things and then take the clues that your body are giving you. Pain, discomfort, um, is it affecting appetite, work, sexual activity, exercise, even if you're exercising at home. So first, deliberate about what's going on. And then secondly, um, many of the symptoms, both with endometriosis and fibroids, pain have to do um, with cramping and discomfort that's often due to prostaglandin, um, which is a chemical mm-hmm. that's made that can lead to feelings of labor-like pains or contractions. So we could talk later about what are some of the methods and things that we can do to decrease prostaglandin levels that lead to pain or discomfort. And then we can also mm-hmm. later, of course, talk about things for heavy periods, food, diet, vitamin supplements, and the like that people may need. That is so helpful, um, and it's also really critical because I think a lot of people misinterpreted in some instances um, the access to medical centers um, in this current time of the coronavirus, and so I'm so um, glad and thank you for clarifying that, as you said, hospitals are still open and that we really need to be vigilant about our health care and make smart decisions. That's really uh, great mm-hmm. feedback. Mm-hmm. So you and the other thing I might, oh, go ahead. Could I just add one thing? Because when we look at hospitals, sure. hospitals have multiple layers to it now. Um, and some hospitals will have in the community, at least our hospital, urgent care centers. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be versus um, versus just emergency rooms. We think of true emergency rooms or where you go if you have a gunshot, where you go if you have a car accident, where you go if you fell down and you think you have a broken hip or a broken knee or something. The urgent care um, tend to take um, problems that may be less acute a problem, but less acute. So that also might be another avenue 
um, when you check with your insurance company, some will even prefer that you call first and then go into an urgent care for some things that might be treated um, with a different fashion or in a different fashion. Okay. Mm -hmm. That too is good, good advice. Okay. And so my next question was going to be how can pain and cramping be eased, but you mentioned prostaglandin. So um, does that uh, play a component in the pain and cramping? Yeah, I think um, the medical term for painful periods is called dysmenorrhea. And um, it's thought to be due to compounds in the body that are released called prostaglandins. I often tell patients if they've had children or heard of, you know, stories of childbirth that the highest levels of prostaglandins occur during labor, and that's what causes the pain of labor. There's some early work where doctors are using um, potential medication um, that's called an anti-prostaglandin, so it lowers the prostaglandin levels um, in women that are in early labor. There's some great studies that have collected the blood um, in a cup uh, that's placed in the vagina from women with very heavy periods. And in specific, since we're talking about dysmenorrhea pain, women with bad cramping, and they find when they analyze the, the blood levels of prostaglandin, it's very high. So there are things that women might do to ease pain. Um, and so the anti-prostaglandins that are on the market, overall, collectively, we call them NSAIDs or non-steroidals. Um, brand names might be ibuprofen, Advil, Aleve, Motrin, Anaprox, Naproxen. Some of these things mm -hmm. can be purchased over the counter. You have to be careful and not overdose on any of these because it could lead to um, kidney and liver problems. So I would say to someone, mm -hmm. um, read the label um, and take the medicine as prescribed. Other things that are just comforting, the old-fashioned um, hot water bottle or heating pad. Mm -hmm. um, so we could look at things like that. Uh, there have been um, um, studies that have shown that exercise may help alleviate cramping. Yoga uh, mm -hmm. may uh, help mm -hmm. with menstrual cramping. Um, and um, I would say, um, while we're not doing this now, um, I've made referrals to have patients to be seen by acupuncturists um, to help relieve um, um, painful periods through relaxing the nervous system. So there's studies, in the, especially a lot in the uh, Asian culture, Chinese culture, with using acupuncture for a lot of different things. Peppermint, chamomile mm. tea can also be helpful. So that, you know, if you're going out to the store, we can try that. Increasing the amount of magnesium in the diet can be helpful. Um, so I think, um, you know, there are some people that say that some essence, uh, I'm sorry, essential oils like lavender, sage, um, marjoram may be helpful, but just um, um self-massaging this on the abdomen um, can be helpful. And even some have said that having great sex, uh, achieving an orgasm, whether mm -hmm. with sex or self-pleasure, self uh -huh. um, can also lead to what we call better and higher levels of the good endorphins um, in our brain that may make things better. So um, what we find is that... Um, there are many things. Some have said that even diets, um, what we eat, mm -hmm. can affect um, our, 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 um, how we feel, improving or increasing the amount of fresh fruit, uh, as many vegetables. I always tell my patients to eat from the rainbow. Your plate should have every color of the rainbow. And if it's only brown and white, you know, bread and meat and gravy, that's not good. So you want to have all the colors of the rainbow um, when you're going to choose foods, whether it's fruits and vegetables, um, that may be helpful. And then if you need the help of a physician, uh, we could talk about, depending on pregnancy desires and, and all of that, that even if someone is not having uh, vaginal sex or concerned about pregnancy, that um, uh, uh, progestin IUDs are phenomenal low-dose birth control mm -hmm. pills in a pro, uh, with patients um, can be helpful. And then finally, um, sometimes, you know, you have to be seen by a physician. 
to look at what are the structural causes. Could you have fibroids? Could you have endometriosis? Could you have adenomyosis? So there are many, many different um, causes that can uh, lead to painful periods or heavy periods and working with a physician or healthcare provider uh, with a physical exam, imaging uh, may be necessary. But until you get an office appointment, doing some of the things that we talked about may help. And, um, you know, so I would always encourage patients to try some of these things, but if they're really not getting better, especially when we call the QOLs, the quality of life um, factors, keep you from going to work, leave work early, um, embarrassed because of the amount of bleeding, um, poor sleep, poor quality of life. When those quality of life, missing work, um, skipping out on sporting things or travel, um, when your quality of life is really compromised, I definitely say um, you need to see a healthcare provider to really work and find out what are the causes uh, of the problem, whether we're talking about bleeding or we're talking about um, very painful periods. So we have to put the picture together. I always tell my patients, put the puzzle together, the history, the physical examination, mm -hmm. the imaging, what's worked, what hasn't worked, um, to know how we can create a solution. I, I I always love to hear you say put the puzzle together because I think that really um, paints a picture for everyone of how it needs to be a collaborative effort and how there are many different pieces that contribute to an overall wellness plan. And I also mm -hmm. appreciate you sharing not only things that women can do right now, but things that they can plan to do and interactions they can plan to have with their physicians moving forward and looking at things like acupuncture or magnesium, which can be very helpful for relaxing those muscles, which you don't hear that often, but is, mm -hmm. is tremendously beneficial that I too personally have found. And um, mm -hmm. I think that sexual health is overall health. And that too mm -hmm. is important and something that um, needs to be, you know, attention needs to be given there as well. So that, that was a fantastic answer that I think that, um, I hope that our listeners will really, really be able to benefit from that feedback you provided. Um, so anemia, that's a huge topic. Um, I know for me as a patient, it was something that just was not familiar. It took me as a non-medical professional, took me a while to understand what anemia was and, and what the ramifications were of being um, anemic and having a low hemoglobin level. Um, can you describe uh, anemia and, and what are some ways to monitor and manage anemia with your physician? Yeah, I, I think that's an important uh, factor. One of the things, um, the most common cause in, in the U.S. for anemia would be loss of blood. And in women, the most common source of loss of blood is um, heavy, heavy periods. Or if someone is pregnant every 9 to 12 months and you lose blood with you know the delivery, it would be loss of blood on uh, other sources would be more obviously obvious if you're vomiting up blood, you can lose blood from a colon cancer. Luckily, it's rare in young women, but change in the size, caliber, color of the stool, strong family history of uh, colon cancer. So anemia is a sign of many things. Uh, uh, not getting enough iron, people that are anorexic or bulimia, not eating well, uh, having other chronic diseases, may also present with anemia. But when it's coupled with usually with blood loss that's excessive, that doesn't allow a normal diet to um, replenish the iron stores, women can suffer. Uh, what are the symptoms that you want to be on the lookout? And patients don't have to have every symptom. It can be a couple of things. Excessive fatigue, um, tiredness over your usual and customary level of tiredness. Um, walking up a flight of stairs, running for a bus, um, feeling uh, winded or short of breath, uh, feeling like your heart is just beating fast. We call that palpitations can be a symptom. Loss of hair. Maybe you didn't get a relaxer or didn't have a, a permanent or color in your hair and your hair is just shedding. 
a favorite question I love to ask my patients, have they had any unusual cravings, cravings for ice, starch, dirt? Some of my patients have eaten toilet paper, eaten the pink rollers. Um, We call that pica, P-I-C-A, unusual food cravings. Um, And um, that's actually when you look that up, uh, we don't know why um, that happens, a real uh, pathophysiologic Mm -hmm. reason. But I ask patients Mm -hmm. about that color. Even my patients that are the most beautiful brown-hued women can just look pale and pasty. So not just white women. You look at someone and say, oh, my God, you look pale. Your hand's looking extremely pale. The under, mm-hmm. you pull your eye, eyelid down to just look at it. Instead of that nice rosy color, it's just uh, a very uh, pale yellow-white um, color, um, excessive sleep. Um, those are just some of the common uh, symptoms that we think about. And one of the problems is a lot of doctors, when women have heavy periods, which is the number one culprit of anemia, some women have just gotten so used to having heavy periods that when we ask them, you know, are your periods heavy? They'll tell the patient no, because the last two, three, four years, they've just dealt with torrential periods and they don't know any different. So um, how many pads, how many tampons, how often are you changing? It is not normal to have to get up at nighttime to change. It is not normal to have to double pad, take extra clothing, um, to be afraid to sit or stand for a long time, um, feeling that you're going to bleed through things. Those things are just not normal, even though women reconfigure their lives to make life during their periods manageable. So um, those symptoms, I think, um, which should be looked at and reassessed, um, your breathing rate, how you're feeling with exercise, have you stopped exercising, um, those kinds of things are extremely important. Um, Sometimes people get so anemic, it's rare that they go into congestive heart failure. Their heart gets weak. They can start having uh, uh, swelling or edema of their lower extremities or feet and legs. So um, it's hard to say, again, we ask a lot of questions, but those would be the things that I would think of patients, to think that the patients need to know about when putting together all of their GYN complaints, their sense of well-being. Is it there or is it not, or is it now compromised? That's incredibly helpful. Is there a normal hemoglobin range for women to be in? Normally, we like um, the blood count hemoglobin of about 11 and a half to usually for women, 13, 14 would be tops. Um, and when you okay. get below a hemoglobin of eight for some women, um, then mm-hmm. some of the symptoms um, become more prevalent. But I've had patients with hemoglobins of 10 that still feel crappy. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there is a range. Um, sometimes women who smoke, have a higher hemoglobin. So we have to look at not just the number, but also evaluate the patient's symptoms. And I think it's important to note how you're actually physically feeling because anytime that you drop a point or two in your hemoglobin level, I found you do feel worse. And so regardless yep. of the number, mm-hmm. um, you know, paying attention right. to how you feel is, is really, really important. Okay. And, you know, the other Again, thing very that happens, some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some patients, for instance, will have, you know, a regular, meaning predictable period. Uh, they can, patients can tell when the period is going to stop and end, and it's excessively heavy. Um, and they may feel their worst during and a few days after their period. But then they've got 15, 18 days to recover. And in America, most of us eat fortified foods. There's extra iron, um, you know, in our foods, or some may take an iron pill or extra vitamin C that helps to absorb iron from our food sources. So sometimes um, I have found that women right after their periods feel the worst, and we sometimes will do a blood count right then, uh, because if you wait two weeks going into their third week, you can recover that. So an acute blood loss, we can pick up with a blood count. Um, and sometimes the number, if you say, oh, my period, I'm just, you know, it's the beginning of the month. Now you're seeing the patient uh, at the end of the month. 
and you check a blood count, it indeed may be um, normal. So kind of have to put everything together, as we mentioned before. That's very important. Okay. I've often heard you speak about patients prioritizing their treatment goals with their physician. And I think your advice is incredibly helpful the way you advise patients to rank their concerns or treatment goals. Would you speak about your recommendations for shared decision-making and prioritization? Yeah, those, I think this is a new uh, tenet or facet in medicine, taking the patient's opinion into consideration um, for any treatment. And I think the important thing is for the patient to tell her story, to know her story, um, and to be able to elaborate that to her physician. And so I, when, I, when I see my patients, I do try to let them tell their story. Um, and also, like we've talked, look at their quality of life. As you know, fibroids, let's just stick with that for a moment. But also like endometriosis, they can have so many different symptoms. Fibroids can, you know, the normal uterus is the size of a lemon, but it can get the size of a turkey. It can be the size of an orange or the size of a pineapple. So when we look at fibroids, I mean, there are many symptoms and they're not siloed. For some patients, that growth of the uterus can make them look and feel pregnant. And they, that pressure, the mass effect, as we call it, can push on the bladder where patients um, are voiding uh, a lot. I had a patient call me yesterday. She's urinating 30 times a day. I mean, that's from a big fibroid. It's not that she's diabetic. It's not from a bladder infection. Some patients, the fibroid pushes so much pressure on the abdominal organs that they uh, have constipation. Patients don't go to the bathroom for three days to seven days. Some patients can't urinate at all. They get urinary retention and they have to go to the mm-hmm. emergency room and put a catheter in. That's a symptom. Some people bleed like Niagara Falls. Some patients have severe pain. Some patients have recurrent miscarriages. Uh, some patients have the cosmetic effects of looking pregnant. So um, there's so many domains for fibroid-related symptoms. And luckily, there are many treatments that we can do. So I will ask my patients, tell me your story. And then I ask them to, I say, rank, R-A-N-K, rank order. What do you want me to fix first? What bothers you the most? What things could you, um, if we didn't do anything about, could you live with? And so it's through that lens of what the patient wants. Some people want everything Mm -hmm. fixed. And so, you know, it depends if it's heavy bleeding. You know, the size, the number, the location of the fibroids makes a difference. There are many um, medications that we can just use that are non-hormonal during a menstrual cycle and new medications that are coming down the pipe for heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, So uh, pregnancy, a desire for pregnancy or children versus no children, the desire for um, a cure, meaning I don't want to deal with it again, puts us in the realm potentially of hysterectomy. And for some patients, that is Mm -hmm. the right decision for them. But it's never the Mm -hmm. right decision when somebody tells me that they want to have children or keep the options open. Sometimes it's not surgery, but procedures like uterine artery embolization or MRI-guided ultrasound or the ASSESA procedure for uh, treatment of fibroids. Um, So I Mm -hmm. think we have to sort of see what's what's available, what's the training for physicians, what's available at hospitals or um, institutions. So we kind of have those discussions. And for some patients, it is not a 15 or 20 minute visit that all the answers can be can be given. And I sometimes I ask patients to go home, think about things, journal a little bit better, think about critically, what do you want? And then here's some reading materials and then come back and talk about it. I definitely, this is my own bias and my own practice and my own style as a physician because there's an art, there's a science to medicine and there's an art to medicine. I will never, ever have a patient leaving my office for the first time meeting them, signing up for a hysterectomy or signing up for a major surgery unless it is so emergent that we have no time to think about options. 
So I think patients, by meeting the physician, knowing the style of the practice, what's available with that physician, does that physician um, have partners in their group that do uh, specialty um, surgery if that's needed, what kind of inter-office referrals can be made or institutional um, relationships with interventional radiologists may be there. So I think it's extremely important to have a great uh, confidence in your physician, a great ability to share your concerns, to not feel rushed, and to be able to come back with questions and to think about the options. Uh, because sometimes it's a lot of information to digest and, uh, at one time. And the good news is I tell my patients, I'm not saving anybody's life. Okay, most of the time fibroids are not cancerous, but what I'm, my mm -hmm. job and our job as gynecologists is to make and improve the quality of your life and to stay within the parameters that fit your personal belief system about your body, how you want to be treated, what you are willing to try, um, and um, to, to then work together collectively. Uh, so that's how my style of practice is and has almost always has been. And I think it... Um, works well with the patient and that she gets to be heard and we can go over things and um, determine what are the options based on her individual um, problems that she wants fixed. Um, so that's, it, that's what I would say. It's so important for our listeners to hear that because oftentimes women are diagnosed with fibroids having never heard of fibroids before. And so um, they immediately feel a lot of pressure to understand what's happening um, and understand a lot of terms and understand treatment options. And so um, I greatly appreciate you walking through uh, how your you know, a patient should approach uh, interacting with their physician, with their physician's office, and just kind of taking a step back and looking at things from the perspective of quality of life and mapping out a plan for treatment. That is so incredibly important, and I think that it will help many uh, women in our community. And the other thing I would really uh, add, let, oh, let, me, let me just let me just add, add one more thing. Uh -huh. The other thing is that it's a little overwhelming when we look at the prevalence of a disease or the prevalence of fibroids. And we could say anywhere from 50% of women to 80% of women uh, have fibroids. So there are a group of women that are asymptomatic. They have fibroids and the, there's no symptom that we've reviewed that bothers the patients. And there are times that patients are new patients to me. The, you know, I sit and talk with them, ask all these different questions about their health and sexuality, and everything's fine. There's every, I'm perfect, my periods, I have no problem, no pain, um, blah, blah, blah. And then I go to examine them, and instead of their uterus being the size of a lemon, it's the size of a cantaloupe, okay? But it wow. is not bothering the patient, okay? And so one mm -hmm. of the things I really do want to say, um, because many treatments are going to happen in the future, we have to be very careful about thinking that we can tinker with and fix everything. My own personal belief is that if the fibroids are present and not a problem, we don't need to do anything but follow it. And I tell my patients, if it's not bothering you, um, there's nothing I can do to make things better. You know, I cannot uh -huh. fix what's not broken. So if someone comes in and no problems, nothing identified on the history, and I do an exam and I feel something that feels like a size of a cantaloupe or something. Yeah, the first thing, even though there's no symptoms, there are other things that can mimic this. I have to make sure she doesn't have an ovarian mass or an ovarian cyst. So I think imaging like an ultrasound sometimes MRI, <clears throat> to be determined by the physician visit. But when I find an asymptomatic patient and I confirm that this growth that I felt is a fibroid, we just follow it. And that might mean okay. seeing the patient in six months, sometimes a year, letting the patients know what symptoms there could 
um, be in the future to, again, journal if there's a difference to come back. But I'm really, really, I see a number of women that have gone in that have completely zero symptoms and are told that they need surgery, whether it's taking out a fibroid or taking out, uh, taking out a fibroid is called myomectomy. Even if it can be done with a robot or a laparoscope or a minimally invasive technique or a minimally invasive hysterectomy, it is still surgery. And so I would mm-hmm. urge and caution all women, if those fibroids are not bothering you, do not be uh, talked in to medical therapy or to surgical therapy, but instead it is watchful waiting. And um, because I think we can overdo treatments, um, we can overdo treatments that are not needed. And again, we cannot fix what's not broken and we cannot, you know, my patients, I love them all. Well, Dr. Bradley, tell me, are they going to grow? They're going to get bigger. They're going to call us the problem. And I'll look right at them and I say, you know, I don't have the crystal ball. I'm here for you if, if they change, if it becomes a problem, but we should not. Um, just with a blanket statement, treat all of these women when there is nothing wrong with them. There's lots of people walking around the world in different cultures with fibroids that aren't bothering them. So um, as new treatments come down the pike, um, do not be misled into saying that, oh, we've got a cure for treating something to make them smaller, be on a medication for life potentially present, prevent a problem? I don't think so. You know, we don't take off, um, uh, do double mastectomies for the fear of breast cancer when we know that one out of eight to one out of 10 women may develop breast cancer by the time that they're 90 years old. You know, we don't automatically take out your tonsils like we used to and take out the appendix like we used to. There are a lot of things that require watchful waiting. And I think we can be potentially be um, uh, overly uh, enthusiastic in recommending treatments to women who have no symptoms and we don't know if they will ever have a symptom. So I, I just would say be careful. I I feel like I want to take a megaphone and just broadcast what you said, because it's so critical that um, women understand that because um, surgeries, unnecessary surgeries are recommended far too frequently still. Yeah, and the the other is right. Go ahead. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm so glad that you. No, it's okay. I'm so glad that you you said that, and it's one of the reasons where I always love speaking with you because you provide the the real life, very um, ethically based recommendations that I think that our community um, will really benefit from. Right. I had a you know, question about. Well, well, I, let me just just mention one other quick thing uh-huh. as it relates to this. The other word that I wish that we could get rid of in our lexicon as gynecologists and as physicians is the word tumors, Mm -hmm. T-U-M-O-R-S, okay? Because when Mm -hmm. we hear the word tumor, we think of what? Cancer. These are fibroids. These are lyomyomas, okay? Do they have the potential of ever being a cancer? Yes. Worst case scenario, one out of 300 more likely one out of a thousand. So it is very rare. In my career of more than 25 years at the hospital, I've had three patients with cancer within a fibroid. Does it ever happen? Yes, but it's rare. So when doctors and healthcare providers use the word, oh, you have a, a, a tumor in your pelvis, everybody gets freaked out. They're nervous. They're afraid. This is a word we need to throw away as it relates mm-hmm. to fibroids, okay? So you have, most likely, ma'am, a benign growth of the uterus that lots of people have, and we have many treatments for it that can prevent extirpative surgery if you do not wish to have your uterus removed. So I do think that we have to be very cautious about that word because that will um, that will lead to... Um, fear of cancer. I do not want to minimize that there are 
small numbers of women that have what are called lyomyosarcomas, and a very uh, astute patient and physician will be able to often pick up on these symptoms um, to work to, that merit further evaluation or imaging or biopsies. So I just want to mention that because we can really frighten women um, by um, using that language. And so I like to erase that uh, to make it go away and to remove it from our, our language as it relates to uh, uterine fibroids. Thanks for making that very important point. Um, I'm glad that you, uh, you added that. That is critical because there is some fear when women hear the word tumor. And so we should refer to it as fibroids or uterine fibroids. Agreed. Correct. Agreed, agreed. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. I have, Absolutely. I, I had a question on um, the coronavirus, but I think that you really uh, answered that really well in our opening when we were talking about accessing care during this time. So I'm going to skip over that one. Um, I wanted okay. to um, learn more about uh, your work at Cleveland Clinic. And do you treat patients virtually at uh, Cleveland Clinic and are surgeries being scheduled at this time? Okay. Uh, yes, we, we're very fortunate that we have a very progressive institution uh, as it relates to virtual visits. And believe it or not, next week uh, we will be officially starting um, to take appointments that patients can call and schedule. And um, we'll have an icon on our, our, our um, scheduling page that so we click a button, looks like a little camera, and we can be connected to patients who have that ability. They want to see the physician um, to do video conferencing. And we also talk to patients by phone. In this era of COVID, since uh, it started, I all of us have had to cancel sort of routine visits. Right now, I'm seeing patients two days a week in the office because there's some certain patients whose histories have to be uh, clarified by uh, an, an examination. And so, um, yes, we are seeing patients uh, if uh, there are some acute problems with abdominal pain. Um, I saw a patient who had unprotected sex. She called for a virtual visit. Well, I can't do a culture for gonorrhea and chlamydia and trichomonas and things like that by phone. We have to see her in the office. If there's somebody that has had, uh, unfortunately, been raped or something with domestic violence, we have to see and document. So, yes, the hospital is open. Each practice will be different. We are now doing surgery, and we never fully stop surgery. What we liked is the terminology, was it essential or non-essential surgery? We really didn't like the word elective. Elective surgery, people often thought of it as being plastic surgery, facelifts, tummy tuck, mm -hmm. tummy tuck or you know, breast augmentation or something. But you know, essential versus non-essential surgery. And uh, essential surgery are things that are affecting quality of life. Uh, things that if you don't take care of it could be that could be worse um, uh, cases that you're not sure if there could be a malignancy in uh, cases that aren't getting better with medical therapy the good news is that as the COVID pandemic it's not gone away it will not go away for a while but we're getting more protective equipment uh, all of our patients now I did five surgeries last Friday every single one of them had COVID testing before why is that important? Uh, protect the patient, it protects us. We know, do we need to use all of this um, PPEs in the operating room because that takes away potentially the equipment that might be needed for people that really need it in an ICU. At the Cleveland Clinic, we're now re -able, re able to re-sterilize almost 4,000 PPE masks per day. So we have more equipment. We can- um, Great. Uh, potentially put patients on hold if the surge comes back again. So the, the answer is doctors will look at a situation and determine if it's essential and there are four criteria that I just mentioned, or is, uh, or is this something that needs to be done but could wait a month to three months. And so um, during this time that our hospitals had less surgery, I have continued to operate on women 
who met those criteria. Because I, as a doctor, wanted to be a good steward when equipment was low to be able to, um, to have that equipment for patients in the ICU as well as for the doctors and nurses that care for them. So I think across the country, we are now lifting the bands, but we also know that we may have to clamp down again if this pandemic uh, and the numbers in any community or hospital in particular where you live may uh, need the beds and need um, the equipment uh, to serve the patients with acute COVID-related illnesses. And then finally, finally, we uh, are able to offer virtual visits, at least to start with, for patients. Uh, Mm It will never fully replace uh, a hands-on visit. But if someone, again, I've had many calls, women who have never seen heavy bleeding, they don't have an ultrasound, so I can order their blood count, their iron levels, their thyroid levels, just to make sure, you know, in terms of, Uh, why they may be bleeding heavily. I could start a medication on them. I can tell them um, uh, if they had an ultrasound to get the record sent to me. Maybe in the interim, we would do another ultrasound. Or if I know that their uterus is quite large from a previous scan, that we might get an MRI so that when they do come in to see me, like this week, everybody that I saw has had what we call a distant visit or a televisit. But everything was there that I needed to have. My note is done. It's an official um, visit. And then we put it together. Exam, breast exam, pap smear, go over results, um, and things like that. So um, I think this is a new way of business. And I actually, as a physician, like it. And it makes it more available to our patients. And this can be done um, anywhere. With COVID right now, the good news, and I hope that the advocacy will continue to work, we can talk to patients anywhere in the country because a lot of the um, licensing issues have been currently lifted. So, you know, before I'm just kind of licensed to practice in the state of Ohio, so to speak, and maybe one other state with some reciprocity. But now um, for our whole institution, whether it's cardiac care, gynecologic care, geriatric care, psychiatric care, that we can now provide this through a virtual format Um, through our hospital. And I think this is a win-win and a good outcome. Um, Unfortunately, it had to come by way of the COVID um, or coronavirus pandemic. But I think I'd like to say that we are hoping as physicians that this new paradigm of practice uh, virtually, it won't suffice the hands-on doctor-patient relationship, Mm -hmm. but it can enhance it. And um, um, I've enjoyed taking advantage of what we can do now. That's wonderful. And um, your your reference in that answer to uh, adjusting to changing times really is a great segue into my last question, which is I really loved your quote in your recent article about this time during the shelter in place of being a gift of great pause. And I too am focused on the silver linings that we can find during challenging times. Would you speak on the the gift of great pause that you wrote about? Yeah, I I wrote this article for our AAGL Newscope magazine. And I think in life, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Uh, I'll speak for myself and personalize it. I think I was just overly extended and said yes to everything. And I think the gift of the great pause has let us put some breaks in our life to slow down, to reconnect with friends and family, to exercise, to be silly and watch lots of television or to clean your house, (laughs) you know, feverishly. So the pause is allowing us to just look at things. As I mentioned, I have gone to work many days in the spring to summer and not realized that the leaves had blossomed, that the, I'm sorry, that the flowers have blossomed and that the leaves have um, come out on the trees because you don't know how you've gotten from one place to another. But this just allows us, there's not much you can do. Uh, I've enjoyed nature. Um, Where I live, there are tons of metro parks, so we walk, uh, biking now when the weather's good, uh, reconnecting with friends, um, cooking, 
doing things that I just never had time to do. So the pause, instead of making it a complaint or saying what we lost, what we can't do, I think the small uh, gifts of just quiet and solitude and reflection and we um, we emerging after this as a stronger American or a stronger human being is going to be there because we've had time to reflect. And um, I have had more time now to connect with people I've not talked with. I jokingly say I've learned Zoom skills, uh, things I didn't know need to know how to do. And, and um, so I just think, you know, sometimes we have to have gratitude. We can certainly complain. And I'm also, again, I'm very fortunately fortunate that I have income, um, that I haven't lost my job. So the pause may really affect our essential workers differently who really have to show up every day, uh, catch public transportation. But I also know that this pause in my life has made me see people that I may not have thanked as often, smiled at as much as before, um, appreciated their gifts, the grocery grocery person, the person that's um, picking up the garbage from my home. So I think it's been an eye-opener that all of us are essential right Uh now, and some of us more than others. And the important thing to me after this pause is that whatever didn't work in your life or wasn't working well, that we just don't go back out of habit and Uh resume those activities. And also to look at the people that have really kept this country going, who never get credit, who never get a thank you, who never get, um, you know, pots and pans um, that are being uh, drummed upon at Mm -hmm. seven o'clock. We have to really, we're Mm -hmm. all one humanity. And I hope that I will carry that because I got away from that. And um, I'm embarrassed to say that I don't think I said thank you enough to people who really make all of our lives better and have allowed us to keep doing what we can do uh, for all of our families. And uh, we need to appreciate everyone um, because we're all essential. And, um, and I also think um, just lots of things that are going on right now and that we can support small businesses when, when things come back. Uh, and that mm-hmm. we are our sisters and brothers keepers. I think that that's a perfect way to end our broadcast, and I couldn't agree more. And I thank you so much, Dr. Bradley, and I'm sure that our listeners will find this incredibly helpful. Um, we're so grateful to have you on the show today, and thank you. Um, we're also very grateful to have you as a member of our advisory board. Um, please remember, everyone, that you may uh, reach out to Dr. Bradley's office at, at Cleveland Clinic. Um, you can find their website online, and we'll provide a link attached to our podcast link. <laughs>